So growing up in Alabama in a family of six, Light Watkins never imagined he'd find himself in his mid-40s some 15 years into a career as a meditation teacher, having led workshops and trained thousands around the world, giving up nearly all of his worldly possessions to live out of a backpack and be nomadic for the last three years. Basing out of Mexico City for the moment, this last year and a half, it created the space to really reflect on his life of teaching, travel, connection, serendipity, and impact. And the stories and insights that began to emerge needed to be written down and shared. Stories about being a young black kid growing up in the South, living in New York, saying yes to a gig advertising that would become his one and only traditional job, walking into a meditation workshop with a lot of hesitance and walking out sensing it would be his life's work, immersing himself in India, starting a sober social movement called The Shine, and reflecting on meaning, friendship, love, serendipity, surrender, and of course, meditation, and more broadly, the role of stillness and reflection in our lives. He has distilled these stories and awakenings into a beautiful new book, Knowing Where to Look, and we dive into all of it in today's inspiring conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Man, what a year to did you have the idea to start at the end of the tunnel before this last year? Yeah, or was it sort you know of how it is. I've been dragging yeah. my feet for probably <laughs> a year and a half. So it was actually perfect. The pandemic was perfect for for me starting my podcast and finishing my book and all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, talk about timing there, like to literally start a podcast called At the End of the Tunnel, when we're sort of like 
the the entire world is entering this new tunnel that is utterly dark and we have no idea what's next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was doing this show called The Shine yeah. for five years, which is kind of the same concept. I've always just been fascinated by the backstory of people who do things for social good, people who start movements and stuff. And because, you know, it's not something that I feel like is really supported in our society. I mean, it's something that's seen as a, a side project, but not really a main thing. And uh, And so people who dedicate their lives to doing it is really fascinating to me. And I'm also really a big fan of uh, Guy Raz's How I Built This yeah, yeah. And, and hearing those, the backstory of the entrepreneur building their company. And I thought, let's combine those two and talk about the backstory so that other people can see that, yeah, it's no matter who you are, you know, people just are out there doing the most they can with what they have. And, and it's so, it's uncanny when you hear story after story after story of the same thing where people don't know how it's going to turn out, but they take a leap of faith anyway, and nobody supports them in the beginning. And then, you know, it all comes, uh, it all comes around at the end and turns into this beautiful thing. So I love sharing those stories. I I love that too. And one of the things I think is really curious and kind of fascinating about the stories that you end up telling too, and the guests you have is that, um, you know, these are people where some people might listen, zoom the lens out and kind of think to themselves, okay, if you're going to go through this, like you could do the same thing, but in the context of tech or traditional startups or some other business where the potential quote payoff, you know, if you actually are going to survive so much challenge, so much diversity, so much struggle is in theory so much greater. And yet these they're making these intentional choices to say, yes, and this is about something that is so much beyond, you know, like my ability to exit. Yeah. It's like a calling. And, you know, once you get caught up in the grips of a calling, you have to, you have to take action on it. I guess you don't have to, but it, it, life tends to be very challenging for people who don't, who, who reject their calling. So I want as many people as possible to be inspired to, to, embrace their own calling and you know because i think that's what the world needs more of is people doing that and and like i said the the society is already we already have enough messaging around yeah start your business become a millionaire sell your business get into crypto you know all the kind of money making things that everyone is being tempted to do and it's funny because we keep running that experiment because at the other end of that you don't feel happier usually you know, like there's some satisfaction from achieving a goal, but then it's like what David Brooks talks about in the New York Times with his book. I think it's called The Second Mountain or something. Yeah. So you get up to the top of the mountain and all you do is you see that there are other mountains <laughs> that you want to achieve. And this one was nice for five minutes, but now it's time to go to another one. And so the question really comes back to where's fulfillment? And the, the, hypothesis that I'm operating under is that fulfillment is inside when you follow your calling. When you when you do that, then you you become more fulfilled than you would from and it doesn't have to be either or either I'm going to make money or follow my calling. Yeah. A lot of times that leads to paid speaking gigs, books and all of that, you know. So Yeah, it's like which it's more the byproduct, you know, mm. of of the more deeply meaning driven um pursuit. It's interesting you brought up that that book The Second Mountain. I and you and I see the world so similarly. We've talked about this in the past. 
I learned that sort of like similar concept rock climbing decades ago. We were on this climb in South Platte, Colorado. This is 30 years ago called, it's funny that I remember this because I don't remember a lot. It was called Topographic Oceans. Um, and it was a series of domes that you kept climbing, but you didn't realize that there was a new one to climb until you sort of like rounded the top of the one you were on. You're like, <laughs> oh, re like really? Like mm -hmm. seriously? Like I'm not there yet? And I agree with you. I think when the ultimate goal is money, status, power, prestige, yeah, it's just there is false peak after false peak after false peak. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's I think with life experience, you may get there, but I think there are ways to get there a lot faster if you are surrounded by the right kinds of people or have access to the right kinds of reminders, maybe through books or podcasts like this or uh, stories. And so that was kind of one of the inspirations of this book, Knowing Where to Look which is all about, it's basically 108 different ways of saying fulfillment is inside. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, you know, it's funny. I think last time we were in conversation on the podcast actually was probably right around, I'm trying to remember, I think it was right around the time where you basically said, I'm going to pull the pin on my current life. <laughs> turn everything upside down and completely, literally almost give everything away. It was almost like you were sort of making that, like the classic um, yogi's decision of becoming an ascetic. Well, I don't, uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> a, that's a lot of different ways you that's can That's a very intense that. way of describing. <laughs> I'm definitely not an ascetic, right. but yeah. I don't own a lot of things. I'm living out of a backpack and you're right. It was right it was right when my last book was published, which was in uh, 2018, and I went nomadic in May of 2018 at 45 years old. So I'm going on my third year of this, this month. And so all that means is I'm still doing almost everything I was doing before, except I've added the podcast to the mix. And um, obviously with the pandemic, I'm not traveling as much. So I'm kind of stationary in this Airbnb down here in Mexico City instead of hopping from L.A. to New York to London to Atlanta and all these other places where I was doing these meditation trainings. And uh, But I'm still just living out of a capsule wardrobe from my... The thing that has changed is I used to have a carry-on bag and a backpack, but now I've merged it all into a backpack. I became a what they call a one-bagger. <laughs> and because um, I felt like I, I had to downsize, I had too much stuff. <laughs> and so uh, the, the carry on and the and the backpack was too much. So you downsized too much. just the backpack. Yeah, got it. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, all of my life's possessions fit into those those bags, and uh, and I gave away or sold everything else. The plan was not to have any storage because I know storage rooms are a trap if you're trying to minimize, and so I wanted to force myself. And this is where the aesthetic part comes in. I wanted to force myself very uncomfortably to, to let go of what served me very well for many, many years and decades and, and kind of open myself to what would come from just not owning anything of sentimental value. So I literally, nothing that I have really is of sentimental value. And three years in, when I look at, when I go back through my possessions, because a lot of things have been replaced 
over those years. I only have one thing, maybe two things that have made the whole, the cut. One is a pashmina that I purchased in India several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, which is a really beautiful, it's my meditation sort of scarf. And while it, you know, it's seen a lot of action meditation wise, I'm not overly sentimental about it. Like for instance, if I were to lose it for some reason, I wouldn't lose any sleep or I just get another one, you know, but it's nice that I still have that one because with pashminas, which are made of goat hair, I believe, you don't really wash them. You like hand wash them. So it's the, the way you care for them is very meticulous. Um, so I have those and I have some sandals that I had at the very beginning, some earth runner sandals, not because of any special reason. It's just, they're so, they don't, they don't take up very much space and you need some sort of sandal situation at some point. So I just keep the, I've kept those, but everything else has pretty much been changed out or upgraded or gotten rid of over, over those three years. Yeah. I mean, were, were you surprised? I, I know this is not your first sojourn into nomadism. You've done it a couple of times, sort of like at these turning points in your life, but you're this time you're 45 when, when you do this, were you at all surprised by how quickly you got comfortable living? Well, yeah, um, that's the big difference is yeah. being the age I am. Because, you know, guys my age aren't usually doing things like this. They're usually, I have friends who are grandparents. I have friends who are, have grown children, you know, who've been out of college, who've ma- who are married. And so usually they're looking to move more into, you know, the last stages of their career before retirement and all of these things, or, you know, they become the matriarch or patriarch of their families. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm over here living out of a backpack in Mexico City, not quite sure what's going to happen after next month. <laughs> so on the on paper, yeah, it sounds kind of, it sounds a little bit, maybe even irresponsible, you know? Like I don't have a lot of, I have gotten better about saving money and investing money in, over the last couple of years, but that was never really my focus. It's just that I I was able to fortunately do well financially over the last few years. And I just had, a, I, I don't spend a lot of money. I don't buy, I don't buy anything, you know, I don't have a car. So I'm not looking to, I don't have a car note or, you know, insurance or um, anything like that. I don't, buy a lot of clothes because if I buy anything, it's got to fit into the bag. And and people always give me like little trinkets and things saying, oh, it's just a little small thing. And I have to remind them, I, ha- I literally have no extra space in my bag for anything. I mean, you can imagine after all these years, people give you little things and I have my own little things. And if you just, if you just imagine fitting your whole life, like literally everything, you're a podcaster. Okay. So all your podcast equipment, you like to work out. Okay. So all of your workout gear, you like to meditate. Okay, my meditation puja kit is one-sixth of my bag, right? That's probably my biggest extravagance. I've got little bowls and incense and, you know, little powders and stuff that I use when I'm teaching people meditation. So that takes up a significant part of the bag. But then everything else has to fit around that. And uh, I've got my microphone and all the things. So it, there's no room. There's no room at all for anything else. And yeah, um, no, no and trinkets. I like, <laughs> I like that because it gives me a, a freedom of choicelessness. When I'm out 
with a friend and they're shopping, I have no desire to buy anything because there's there's nowhere to put it. So, you know, I can, it, it, what it does really is it makes you more present to whatever you're experiencing. That's what I found. And that's what I enjoy about the lifestyle is that, yeah, you gave away sentimental things, but you, there are more sentimental things happening all around you all the time if you're present enough to it. Whereas before, I'd be out in Portugal or somewhere and I'd be thinking, oh, I got to move my car next week. <laughs> I got to get somebody to come and water my plants. And, you know, you're basically spending a lot of time and headspace maintaining the storage room with the bed inside of it, which is our apartments and houses. Yeah, I, I love that phrase that you just used, the freedom of choicelessness. I think like it. At first, it feels so counterintuitive. And then like when you just sit with it for a heartbeat, you're like, oh, no, that sounds pretty awesome. You know, when you think about when you think about our, you know, our general approach to life, you know, we so often work so hard and we work to accumulate so much because we feel like accumulation is a proxy for security and freedom. Like, well, if we get enough, we'll feel secure enough that we'll feel free, like, quote, financially free free in our lives, free in our choices. But but in fact, we're doing all of that when you really think about it, just to give ourselves like the scaffolding and the structure and the layers and layers and layers of stuff to simply feel the way that you already feel when you wake up every day living out of a backpack in an Airbnb. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, and look, it's not for everybody. I, yeah. I, I you know, you have. I admit, I don't have kids. I don't. I'm not married. So if I was in that situation, I probably would not be doing what I'm doing. And at the same time, just to be completely transparent, that was one of the reasons why I did what I was doing because I wanted to have kids and you know, be in a long term partnership. And I was kind of rooting in Santa Monica. I had my two-bedroom apartment and my stability, my stable job, you know, books and doing all the things to look successful. And uh, and I wasn't, I still wasn't attracting that into my life for whatever reason. And so I figured, I figured, you know, well, maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on that. And and this is really something that I feel called to try. So let me be more of myself and follow this internal urge to do this thing. Maybe this is the last chance I'll have to do it in my life. I don't know. But it's not a forever thing is my point. It's just something that occurred to me. And like I talk about in my writing, whenever we have that feeling and it comes from the heart and it feels scary and exciting at the same time. That's the sort of voice of inspiration. And instead of doing the, the axe job on it and taking it apart and, you know, coming up with a list of a thousand reasons why it's not going to work, just I need to walk my talk and just go with it. So that it was part, partially that of just following this internal messaging to to take that leap and uh, even when it was, wasn't was necessarily convenient to do so, but it just felt like the right thing to do at the time, even though I wanted to have a family, <laughs> right? That's not the thing you do. It doesn't send the message to a potential mate that, yeah, this guy is, you know, he's he's ready for 
a long-term commitment that you're living out of a backpack on the road constantly and all of that. But, you know, again, that's, that's, that's what I've been talking about all these years. So I have to walk my own talk. So part of it was just that experimentation. And I, but I love it. I really love it. Yeah. And I know you also, you actually write about, um, in your new book that, uh, even though your friends have known you for, you know, some of them for a long time, not everyone was like, oh yeah, I get what, what you're doing. Like go for it. Like I completely support you this. And I think it's not uncommon. A lot of times when we make these unconventional sort of, you know, like unconforming decisions to live differently, not necessarily for life, but at least run this fairly big experiment, the people around us, um, question our sanity to, to a certain extent and not, not necessarily because they're looking to take you down, but sometimes out of genuine concern. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and I also like to remind people that that nomadic endeavor is not, it didn't happen overnight, right? Because it is extreme. I admit it. It is extreme. It's an extreme way to live in comparison to how our conventional society is organized. But if you start small by taking little leaps of faith, and one example I use from time to time is when you're in the elevator. We've all had this experience. You're in the elevator, and um, maybe you're in there with two or three other people. And what do most people do in the elevator? They look up at the numbers or they look down at the floor. Right? You rarely acknowledge or engage with other people in an elevator. And so while staring down at the floor, you may notice something about the other person in the elevator with you. Maybe they have really nice shoes or, you know, they're really nice purse or something. And you may think to yourself, gosh, that's so nice. I, I really love that choice that they made to, you know, wear what they're wearing, or it's love the smell of their cologne or perfume or whatever. And then something kind of stops us from expressing that. And that something could be, oh, I don't want to sound weird, or I don't want to, you know, scare them, or I don't want to, you know, just start talking ourselves out of out of this for various social conditioned reasons, right? Maybe it's self-imposed racism, maybe it's self-imposed ageism, or I don't want to come off creepy or whatever. Instead of just innocently saying, oh, that's those are really nice shoes, you know, no attachment to getting a response, even just, just, and and that's what I mean by a small leap of faith. If, if something inside of you says to express something kind to someone else or to do something kind for someone else and you talk yourself out of it, then you're reinforcing the social conditioning that it's weird and strange and all of that. But what if you made that your new norm and whenever you had the inclination, I mean, sure, it's not always going to land right, but that's, that's why you need reps. Once you get enough repetition going, you won't really be concerned about it. And then your lack of concern will make it more genuine. And because it's more genuine, it will be received a lot more uh, genuinely. So yeah, if you feel weird about it, it's probably going to sound a little weird and you're going to look a little weird, but that's how it starts. And then, you know, after doing that a thousand times, then the idea to do something bigger, like go nomadic, will occur to you. Or your version of that, your ver your version of that um, could be quitting your job that you don't feel fulfilled in, or you know, leaving your relationship or relating to your partner differently 
and and having those conversations and it won't seem weird to you anymore. It'll be weird to your friends. And you know that because when you announce that you, what you're going to do, they're going to say, you're going too far now. I used to see that as, you know, a sign that maybe I should rethink what my plan was, but now I see it as a sign that I'm I'm actually doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. If it doesn't elicit a response like that, you, you're going too far now. You've lost your mind. You're you're nuts. And as well as as well intentioned as it can be from your friends, you know you're not really living as close to your edge as you should be in order to in order to to keep the heart enlivened and to keep operating as close to your purpose as you can. And so I think everybody has that potential, but we just need more examples of people doing it. And why not me and you? Why not people listening to this? Like we should all be doing it to some extent. Yeah, I love that. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. (music) 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. You know, it's interesting also, like you said, you got to get your reps in, sort of slowly lead up to decisions and actions like this. Um, one of the reps for you, it feels like, um, is not just trying all these little things like micro moments and micro behaviors, but is your practice. You know, like you, you're somebody who has a decades long practice in meditation. Um, and I feel like oftentimes that doesn't get the credit in like the decision for you to say, I'm going to basically sell or give everything away at the age of 45 and be nomadic for a chunk of time. You know, like the, the sense of equanimity that you feel with that is a huge part of that decision. Like you make that decision on the back of a decades long meditation practice that informs how you know yourself to be, how well you know yourself and you're like an inner voice that says, I'm going to be okay. Yes. And, and that's the other point that I like to make as well is that, you know, without my practice, I, I don't know if I would be able to do the things that I do as often as I do them. And so we can't discount the effects that, that, that sitting down and closing your eyes for 20, 30 minutes twice a day can have on your ability to say yes to those kinds of hunches because what it does is it creates space, right? Because I'm like everybody else. I, 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 I'm nervous. I get, I feel uncertain. I don't know how things are going to turn out like everybody else. And I want to do the safe thing like everybody else. But there's something about the quality of that space that gets created through a meditate, a daily consistent meditation practice. And I like to make that distinction because I think it's really important to be consistent in order to get those benefits of that spaciousness between the opportunity and the action. Because if you don't have that space, then the tendency is the knee-jerk reaction. Oh, that's crazy. That's I can't do that. I don't have time. You know, because that's the voice that we've been listening to for so long. The voice of social conditioning. The voice of our fears, our, our amygdala, the fight flight voice, That's that voice is really the loudest in our minds because we've given it so much priority over the years and we're taught to in a, in a large way. You know, you, Netflix is, you can look at Netflix as archival database of movies or you can look at it as cautionary tales, <laughs> why you shouldn't 
put yourself out there in those ways. And um, so we naturally think back to stories we've been told, movies we've seen about how these situations did not go well. But then someone else may bring up the point, well, actually it paid off. It just, there was a lot of drama in the middle. And and then we use the excuse, well, that was just a movie, you know, it's not, it's not real life. And but so that spaciousness can break all that down, the spaciousness from the meditation practice and give us a little a clearer perspective. Like instead of having to get to the top of the mountain, we can have that same perspective while we're switchbacking up the mountain. And we can intuit where this is going and whether or not this is aligned with my ultimate purpose for this moment. And if it's not, then we can change course a lot easier, even though we're halfway up the mountain, right? A lot of people may think, well, I'm halfway up the mountain, I may as well go all the way up. But if if you've already intuited that this is not your mountain, what you've done there is you've gained mountain climbing skills, which is going to help you on your mountain. So continuing up the other mountain is not really going to be as useful for you. Obviously, you could still do it. And I think that's what a lot of people are experiencing now in, in relationships, in jobs that are, that are soul-sucking, is they're continuing up the mountain that they've already identified as this is not my mountain because they don't have the spaciousness to be able to turn around. And that takes confidence. It takes inner security because people are going to make fun of you. People are going to shame you. You know, I can't believe you're giving up such a wonderful paycheck or you're, you know, there's nothing wrong with your partner. I can't believe, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you can fool everybody, but you can't fool your body. Your body always knows. Your body always tells you all day long, even at night when you're not sleeping, because your body won't let you sleep if you're not going up your mountain. So at some point you have to, to turn. And and I talk about in the book how meditation, people think, especially men, think meditation makes you gullible, you know, like it's some kind of sissy activity. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I mean, real men don't meditate. Or type A personalities, you know, I don't have time to meditate. And what I say is meditation actually makes you bold. It's the opposite of meditation that makes you gullible. Stress makes you gullible. Stress makes you think that you can white knuckle your way into fulfillment. <laughs> Stress makes you think the reason you're not sleeping well at night is because you don't have the right mattress and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And meditation makes it really hard to put up with somebody else's BS. It makes it really challenging to be with a narcissist for any extended period of time because you don't mind being on your own if you meditate. It makes it real challenging to stay in a dead-end job because you don't mind the uncertainty that comes with being in between employment. And so actually, if you have a consistent, dedicated practice, you'll find yourself doing these kinds of things more often than not. And again, it's not everything's going to be peaches and cream and roses and perfect perfection, you know, but you are able to, to assess your situation for what it is. And you can consciously decide, okay, well, I don't mind having a little bit of drama in my life. So I'm going to keep going up this mountain because I know it's going to be really interesting. And I'll, I'll have some great stories to tell versus feeling like I have no choice but to keep going up the mountain. That's a, that's a very big difference in the quality of your experiences and the way, way that you can engage with them. Yeah. I mean, it's transformative, you know, um, 
I, and I know that from my own life also, you know, the, um, a decade into my practice and it's, it's changed me in ways that snuck up on me. You know, it's, it's the, the less reactivity, it's the being more intentional, but it's also like you said, it's the, it's the seeing more of what's in front of me, um, understanding that there's risk, that there's uncertainty and maybe it's not quantifiable. And then somehow still feeling okay, um, stepping into that space, you know, even though I know I don't know how this is going to end and I may be judged for doing it. And that effect is this, it's not this thing where, you know, you flip a switch and all it, you're there. It's like, no, like over time, there's this slow, slow adaptation that tends to happen and you don't really realize it. It sneaks up in you and then you realize, oh, I'm actually... I notice myself being different in the world, in my relationships, in my relationships with possibility and with uncertainty in, 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 a, in a really similar way to what you describe. You know, what's interesting to me also is that um, you've had um, meditation has been a central practice in your life for a long time. So is writing, you know, to the extent that for the last, I guess it's five years or so, writing daily, like literally sending daily emails to your community of just mm -hmm. whatever is on your mind, which, which, you know, actually becomes the genesis for, for this most recent book. But I'm, I'm curious about that practice for you to be able to sort of say every single day, no matter how I feel, no matter how dog tired, frustrated, angry, upset I am, I'm going to sit down and, and I'm going to write to my community and I'm not going to put my head on a pillow until I have checked that box. Hmm. Yeah, man, I I um I was definitely nervous when I when I first had the idea to do it. And again, it was one of those things where I had the idea and I was dragging my feet for months, probably even a year. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Seth Godin, and I know you've you've interviewed Seth before. I was reading his, I still am reading his daily emails, and I always just kind of fantasized about what that would be like. And I, you know, having been a teacher for as long, I've been a teacher for. 15 years, actually longer, um, I know and appreciate systems and process. And I know how, you know, everything iterates with practice and repetition. And I knew that that would happen with this writing. But at the same time, it, it, there's a time cost to that, right? You, you have to put the time in. And having written one book already at that time, I was actually starting to write my next book and I was flirting with the idea of getting a ghostwriter because I wasn't very confident in my ability to write a, uh, a full 60,000 word book on my own. But my agent, my book agent, talked me into writing the book for myself. And so it was kind of a way of going to writing school for myself, like going to writing gym mm. is what better way than having to write every day. There's a hard deadline every 24 hours. It would be public, which means that you will find out right away if you're, the way you organize your thoughts is, is inspiring people or is offending people and all of that. So again, it was one of those things that was both exciting to me, thinking about all the possibilities, how I could grow and stretch and become a, this, a better writer and, and, and influence and inspire people and motivate people. And it was scary as hell because I could just envision myself waking up late and being on a different time zone and, 
you know, not having enough time and being sick and all those things. And so it checked all the boxes for that sort of leap of faith, heart-driven leap of faith that I talk a lot about now, that I knew it wasn't going to go away because in all the experiences that I had before that with other leaps of faith, we talked about my whole name thing uh, in my in our last podcast interview, and that was in the same category, something that was scary but also kind of exciting. So I knew I had to take it seriously, and uh, and I just decided to start because you know once the book contract gets signed, you don't you have to get busy with writing. <laughs> I know and, that feeling. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to get in the gym as much as possible and, and build my writing strength. So I started, and um, and my biggest fear in the beginning, which was running out of stories to tell after a few weeks, it happened. After three or four weeks, I literally sat down and had nothing to say. I felt like I had said everything there was to say about anything that I was familiar with. But something really interesting happened. After staring at the computer screen for you know a couple of hours, late at night, it's probably past midnight at this point, this idea just comes through me. And I just started almost dictating it. And that became the next day's daily dose of inspiration email. And I started having that experience often. You know, every now and again, I'd have a conversation with someone and they would say something enlightening and I would, I would make that the subject of the next email. But probably four out of seven times each week, I would just sit down with no idea of what was going to come out and and have this this relate this in exchange with what Stephen Pressfield and Elizabeth Gilbert called the muse. Right? I would get these ideas coming through me and I just jot them down. And the book that I ended up writing out of those five years worth of thousands of emails is comprised of some of the messages that I knew I was going to write when I sat down at the machine. And most of them were muse-inspired messages that I had no idea or no prior knowledge about before I sat down at the machine, which was really interesting to me. And Maya Angelou said something. She said, look, you're never going to, if you're a creative, you're never going to run out of creativity because creativity generates creativity. And that was my experience to a T. So once I saw that happening, I was able to relax into it a lot more. And then the more I relaxed into it, the more that creativity flowed through me. And so I'm still writing them and I'm still sending them out every day. And I'm still feeling like I have nothing to say almost more often than not. (laughs) I feel like I've said everything there is to say, but the ideas keep coming. So as long as they keep coming, I'll keep dictating them. Yeah, I, I love that. It's um, it's funny you mentioned Seth, um, who's an old friend at this point, and I remember him writing at one point something like, you know, the nice thing about knowing that you're going to write every single day is that you know not everything you write is going to be good, but at the same time, you're writing so frequently that your chances of sort of like writing something else that is really good comes up pretty quickly again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like there's a sense of forgiveness, like, ah, you know, like that one was a six out of 10. But you know what, in the scheme of things over the next 30 days or 60 days or three months, you know, like they're going to be a whole bunch of nines there too. And that'll kind of, yeah. You know, so it it all kind of, you know, like 
you forgive the fact that, okay, so not every single time that you sit down to think or write or to open the channels, like it has to be the absolute best that you have to offer. Like sometimes there's just, there's beauty in, in the fact that you're sitting down and what and sharing whatever it is that comes your way. Yeah, man. And, you know, it's it's a delicate balance because I feel like I have to limit how much time I'm spending on these things. I never did it with the intention of writing a book. I mean, that certainly became, you know, once you write a book, you start thinking in books, just like a film director has an experience and thinks, oh, this would be a great film. Or, you know, a playwright would say, this would be an awesome play. So you, you can't help but think of in terms of books, but that wasn't why I necessarily started. And um, I think my standard was so high that I would spend three or four hours sometimes on one email. And you just, it's not sustainable. You know, if you're trying to do other things, it's not sustainable. So within the 24 hour deadline, I, I felt, I feel like it's helpful to give myself a writing window of time with the hard deadline. And the way I've kind of done that is I used to write at night before uh, I go to sleep, but now I write actually in the morning. The email goes out at six o'clock AM Pacific time. So depending on what time zone I'm on, it, I, I sometimes have more time to write in the morning. Sometimes I have less time to write or more time to sleep or whatever, but I try to give myself like an hour and 15 minutes. That's kind of my magic number. And if it doesn't come within the hour and 15 minutes, then you know, um, I'll just put out whatever, whatever did come, you know, and, and I, sometimes I'll, I'll still give myself maybe, an, I'll just send it out a little bit late because I'm just like, oh, I just need to edit it one more time. And that one more time turns into five more times. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's been a labor of love in every sense of that word, because I get as much out of the practice as probably my most enthusiastic readers get out of reading them. When I send them out, I I send it to myself and I open up the email as if I'm one of the recipients and I read it and it's like, wow, this is this is this is hitting home for me. This is what I needed to hear today. Or I'll go back and read some prior ones and it's like I didn't even write them. So yeah, it's it's a fun process to engage in. And again, it informs so many other things that we say we want to do. Because everything boils down to a process at the end of the day. And uh, and I find that to also be a little bit liberating when you think about like learning Spanish, for instance. Like I'm in Mexico City. I don't speak Spanish all that well, but I w would love to be conversational in it. And so I'm sort of taking that same approach and dedicating a little bit of time each day to learning a new word or a new phrase and then trying to incorporate it, et cetera, et cetera, and not put so much pressure on myself, just show up. Yeah. You know, what's interesting though is at, at the same time, like on the one hand, it's about not putting pressure on yourself, but at the same time, and actually you write, this is one of the um, sort of like the offerings of vignettes in, in the book is you talk about this experience that you had, you decided one day, it made perfect sense to take a sort of like a a drawing class, a live figure drawing class at NYU. Mm -hmm. And and the opening day, the experience is professors like, okay, you have 10 seconds to draw this pose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was uh, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend was teaching this class. I was at a dinner party one night and uh, and he was talking about it. And I I have always been artistically inclined since I was a kid. I'm just one of those people I can, I can, make realistic drawings 
without much practice. But I thought it'd be kind of interesting to put myself in that environment to be a little bit more studied in drawing. And, uh, and, and I came to the first class and he, well, there was a live figure, uh, a live model. We we're going to draw this person in this position. And yeah, the first instruction was you have 10 seconds to, to complete your drawing, which of course is not enough time to, you know, to do anything. And so after we did that, everyone's drawing looked like basic chicken scratch. And then the next instruction, he told the model to change positions and he gave us, I think, a minute. And it was just just that one difference in, in 10 seconds in a minute, it almost felt like you had so much more time. And so he kept going through these different iterations. And finally, he got to, we had like 30 minutes. And it was like we had all the time in the world. And and I could have drawn the the Last Supper in detail <laughs> because of the kind of mind game that he played with with the time. And I tell people, you know, if you have a deadline, usually what tends to happen because this is what we do as humans is we use up all the time until the end and then we end up rushing anyway. So why not just give yourself less time, the equivalent of those 10 seconds and see how much you can do. And then, and then the week or the few days that you, that you actually have, you'll be able to maximize those, those hours create something a lot better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think that's often the, the exact opposite process that we go through. We start out by creating, you know, we, okay, so we're going to work on that one pose or that one live figure for a couple mm -hmm. of weeks. And then over time you get better and better and better and you go faster and faster. But, um, so it's fascinating to me to reverse the constraint there mm -hmm. and say, okay, we're, we're going to start out with an absurdly small amount of time to do this task I've just assigned you. And then we're going to assign you a slightly less absurd, but still completely irrational amount of, of time to do this, like a minute or whatever it was until finally. So it's almost like you train yourself to let go of expectation because you know, it's just not conceivable that you could do what's in your mind in that amount of time. And then when you have an amount of time, that's, probably a lot less than you would have thought you needed or wanted, but it's so much more than that absurdly irrational constraint. It feels luxurious. And, and, and you've also learned to forgive yourself along the way because of the way that the process unfolded. Yeah. And that's all important. I think it's kind of like exercising your potential because we, we don't, unfortunately, our potential isn't really stretched unless something bad happens usually. Right. But what if, what if we front load the stretching exercise for our potential and, and make it an intentional practice? And then when good things and bad things happen or we get these opportunities, we can really optimize them without even thinking twice about it. And as you were saying that, what came to mind was a conversation that I had with a friend of mine that actually turned into one of these Daily Dose emails um, years ago. He had taken one of these personal development weekend trainings. It was like Landmark or MITT or something like that. And one of their graduation assignments is they had to do some big project, um, some big social good project. The catch was they only had 24 hours to execute and they couldn't use any of their own money. So his, his uh, goal was to feed, I think, 100 people. 
on the Venice boardwalk. He couldn't use any of his own money. He only had 24 hours. And he couldn't tell anybody, you know, who he was asking money for what he was, you know, the, the stipulations. He just had to make it all happen. He had to get people excited about what he wanted to do, have a plan, et cetera, et cetera. And so he started calling up his friends and saying, hey, I want to go feed people on the boardwalk tomorrow. I'm raising money. How much can you donate? Blah, blah, blah. He goes to CVS, the drugstore, and he's talking to the cashier saying, hey, I need to get um, some free waters or whatever. And the cashier ends up giving him $5 towards his cause. The woman in line behind him ends up giving him $20 towards his cause. He takes the water. He goes to Del Taco or some taco place. He ends up getting 100 tacos made. He gets like a 50% discount after talking to the manager. And so the rest of the money from his friends paid for the balance. And and he said by 12 o'clock noon the next day, he was out on the boardwalk handing out, you know, 100 meals to people uh, who were hungry. But on the surface, on paper, if if someone were to, you know, if at a dinner party the night before, someone were to proposition you to, hey, can you feed 100 people with no money tomorrow? Everyone 99% of people are probably be like, nah, that's not enough time. You know, you start working the excuses, the excuse cycles come. Very important sounding excuses. But when you really exercise your potential in that way, in an intentional way, it, you'd be surprised of how much you can get done. And I think you're, you're right. The deadline is, is really one of the keys to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that makes so much sense to me. And yet we're always avoiding opportunities to make decisions and formulate plans and take action with those constraints. Like we, we literally, we look for opportunities that don't have that because we feel like <laughs> it'll be a more forgiving experience for us. And we don't want to experience the unease, the discomfort that comes along with having to act that way. And I don't think either of us are suggesting that this is the way that you should do everything every day for your entire life. That could be pretty brutal, but like sort of allowing space for regular opportunities like that, I think can be incredibly both hard and enriching. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and that's why we go to the gym and we, you know, we lift weights and we put ourselves in boot camps and whatnot it's because it's not the way we're going to be all the time, but we understand that by exceeding our comfortable, our comfort zone on a, a regular basis, then the the confines of that zone get bigger and bigger and bigger and it starts to bleed into the the growth zone which for most people they find that incredibly uncomfortable but if you go into it enough times then you'll find comfort within the discomfort of growing of strengthening of building of not knowing and uh, and I think that's where you're going to do your best work and you're going to be the most authentic version of yourself because it requires some level of uncertainty to get up and say something, to get up and stand up for other people or to say what everybody else is afraid to say. But that's what leadership is about. That's what being an influencer is truly about. And if we want to, if we aspire to those things, we have to get comfortable with discomfort. Mm, yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You have sort of like interesting reflections on will strengthening, which is because when we commit to doing something like this, I think sometimes also we can go into it and experience it as brutality, even willful brutality, or we can experience the identical thing very differently. You, um, you reference Ram Dass and sort of like his framing of something being either a great weight or a dance. Yeah, I uh, I went to this CrossFit class in uh, Venice, California. And for those of you who've never been to a CrossFit class, usually you go there and they have the the WOD, the workout of the day, on the little eraser board. And you know, it's a mix of different things. It could be snatches and burpees and running a mile and, you know, but all of them are going to be challenging. Some, a lot of them are timed as many as you can do in a certain amount of time, but the the variety makes it doable, right? Because you're not going to be doing one thing for too long. Well, on this day on the eraser board, it just said 100 burpees. <laughs> and like everybody else, I'm not a huge fan of burpees, or at least I wasn't a huge fan of burpees. And, uh, you know, I could do five here and, you know, or seven there, but a hundred burpees, that was like, I mean, it may as well have said a million burpees as far as I was concerned. And, uh, and there were only maybe 10 of us in the class and one woman was pregnant and there was like a couple guys that were pretty fit and there was a couple guys that looked like they were pretty out of shape, more out of shape than, than I thought I was. And the coach starts the clock and we start doing these burpees and, um, and I'm, you know, I, I hit my wall after probably 12 burpees and I still have 88 to go. <laughs> and next thing I know, you know, five minutes into it, the pregnant lady is finished and I still have like 50 or six or 40 burpees to go. And then cut to three minutes later, the out of shape guys are finished. And next thing you know, it's just me just struggling through these last 20 25 burpees and everybody's standing there just 
kind of looking at me and I'm in my head around it, like, oh my God, like this is so embarrassing. I can't believe how how unconditioned I am to do doing these burpees. The next class shows up. Now they're staring at me as well as the class that I'm in. And then the coach gets down and starts doing the last 10 burpees with me. And it's just, I could not wait for that moment to be over in my life. Like, I just want this to be done with. I'm going to finish it. I know I'm going to finish it. I just want it to be done with so I can get on with the rest of my life. I'm never doing another burpee again as long as I live. And on my way home, I thought to myself, you know, God, how, how disempowering my attitude was around all of that. And yeah, something really interesting happened. The next morning I woke up and I just thought I never want to, I would never want to let burpees have that kind of shameful power over me again. I don't want to feel that, that hesitation when I see burpees on the eraser board again. And so, and I thought about the Ramdas quote, you know, you can do it like it's a great weight or you can do it like it's a part of the dance. And so I put on some music, some Fela Kuti music and uh and i just started putting myself through those 100 burpees again and it was still challenging but the the my willingness to move through it was a lot more i don't know the energy was just different it shifted and i actually saw the value in pushing myself that much as opposed to being pushed that much and just really the mental strength to be able to get through all of those was was the was, was the real win for me that morning. So yeah, I started doing that and then I did it again I think the next day and and it became a part of my normal exercise routine at least once a week doing 100 burpees just because that's the thing that that made me feel ashamed if I'm being honest. Mm. You know, it, it's um I think it also ties in in a really interesting way to really just your broader frame on embracing discomfort. Um, you know, this is about reframing it, you know, like, yeah, it's almost saying you, you have a choice here to experience it as a great weight or a beautiful dance. And it's the frame you bring to it. And I think a lot of times we don't feel that. It was interesting to see you take also sort of like another way into the notion of discomfort and turn it into more of an invitation with, um, an approach to New Year's resolution. I guess I don't know if you call it a resolution, but basically like you're turning a page in New Year. And and again, you're sort of building on this this similar idea and, and you literally say, you know, like this year is going to be as difficult as last year. Which most people would look at the year ahead and like the whole frame for them is uh, this next year is going to be awesome. It's going to be so much better. <laughs> so it's really interesting to sort of hear your lens and say like, no, I'm actually going to take the opposite lens. And I'm curious about that. Well, I would say it is going to be awesome because of all the things you're going to learn from it. And, and I, I equate the years to, to college courses, right? When you go to, or any, any, any educational experience where you're wanting to learn something, and it's something that you're signing up for. And the point is to be challenged because that's the way you're going to ultimately integrate it and embody it and learn it inside and out. And if you don't learn it inside and out, then usually you have to repeat that lesson. And so with life, that period of time before the new year where we get all excited about all the possibilities, very few people include the challenge that comes with getting better at something. 
you know, if surfing is on your list of things, your resolutions, part of that is you're going to be drink taking in a lot of salt water. You, you may potentially, you know, break your nose. You may, but you learn how to carry the board from doing all those things, right? So you'll never forget if something uncomfortable happens to you that year, maybe it's a relationship issue where you get broken up with or you get fired or something, but you learn, okay, I got fired because I was in this job that I didn't really like in the first place. And I was trying to make it work instead of listening to my heart. And so now I know what that experience is like. And if I don't, then I have to repeat it again and again and again until eventually you become aware of, okay, this is not my path, right? So all of those moments and experiences are helping to navigate us back to our self, back to our path, where again, we find the fulfillment within. And even then, it's not a path to comfort. <laughs> it's a path to service, to doing what you're here to do, which is the, the most uncomfortable thing that one can do, because usually it's not you're not rewarded with a lot of what the conventional signs of accomplishment, right? Where you have walls of cheerleaders and bonuses and, you know, golden parachutes and all, none of that really comes with the service industry. And so once you, but once you find it, you find, you get the internal reward, which no paycheck can ever compete with. If you have the internal reward, you become one of those people that we still talk about today. You know, when we look at the icons of humanity throughout history, usually it's people who did something really terrible or somebody who was doing something very, very good for society. We're not talking about the railroad barons. There's no holidays for any of them. There's no days of observance for business people. Right? It's all humanitarians. It's all people who were living lives that prioritized the greater good. And you put yourself in that category of people when you are able to really listen to what's happening inside and, and not just listen to it, but take action on it. And a part of that is being open to the lessons that we are inevitably going to get. And it's ironic because that piece that you're referring to, I wrote that December 31st, 2019. So it was literally <laughs> the year of the pandemic. Well, you, you definitely got that wish. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting is that, you know, the way it's framed this year is going to be difficult or as difficult as last year. It's like you're using the word difficult as a leading indicator or a proxy for growth. You're like, okay, so all growth requires a certain amount of resistance, of difficulty, of struggle, of challenge. Like I know a lot of times we'd love that not to be the reality, but it pretty much always is. And the more I hear you deconstruct it, the more I think, okay, so what you're writing really isn't any different in terms of the ultimate desire than what most people would write. But instead of committing to or wishing for 
the pleasant part of the experience. You're acknowledging the difficulty that will be required to get to the pleasant part of the experience or the desired part of it as a way to almost tell yourself, I'm saying yes to all of it. Yeah. And it's, it's the same attitude that I think we have when we walk into a gym. Nobody wants to lift these heavy, heavy ass weights, but there are a couple of really strange people. Too. <laughs> Sounds like right. not me and you though. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if you, if anybody looks at their greatest accomplishment in life, usually it came on the heels of some great difficulty. Otherwise it's not really appreciated as some accomplishment. And I remember seeing this um, TED talk with this woman with prosthetic legs who I think she got some sort of disease and had, had to have her legs amputated when she was a child. But she became this, this motivational speaker, and I think she was a model or something as well. And she'd been traveling all over the world, giving talks in hundreds of countries to thousands of people and impacting millions through her positive message. And at the end of her talk, and I wish I could remember her name, but I can't. But at the end of her talk, she said that a journalist once asked her if she could go back and trade all of those experiences on the motivational speaking circuit and all of the impact that she's able to, been able to have in the world in exchange for having her legs, would she do it? And she said she thought about it for a long time. And she had to admit that no, she wouldn't. Like the fulfillment that comes with being able to help people was so precious, so valuable, and so great that it, it wouldn't even compare to having the thing that most of us cannot even imagine being subjected to, which is having both of your legs amputated and having to navigate the world in that condition, right? And so that's the power of fulfillment. That is the power of fulfillment. When you are doing what you, what makes your heart sing, what inspires other people, that there's nothing greater than that in my experience. And I think that as a society, and I think it's going in that direction, you know, right now you have people who are refusing to work jobs because they're not jobs that make them happy, you know, or they're, they're not purpose driven jobs. And so I think that's one step in the right direction. But ultimately, I feel like we need to celebrate the people who are making those kinds of choices instead of, or in addition to the people who are great singers and actors, right? They're celebrities, but the real celebrities, I think, are people who are out there without the spotlight, feeding people and doing the things that, motivating people and doing the things that their heart is guiding them to do. And, uh, and they're not getting a lot of recognition, recognition. And that's what makes it so powerful is that they're doing it anyway. Mm, I love that. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So <laughs> I have asked you this question once before, it was a number of years ago, but you know, we evolve as human beings. So I'm always curious, you know, in this container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Mm -hmm. To live a good life, man, means to listen to your heart and follow it. And that's been my dominant message. Uh, it, it sounds easy, but it's definitely not for the faint at heart, ironically, because 
your heart is not going to point you in a direction that makes you more comfortable or that necessarily even makes you more money. It's oftentimes going to point you in a direction that you're not quite sure how it's going to turn out and your friends are going to say that you've lost your mind. And so you're going to have to go against all of that. But once you step outside of it, then it's it's not scary anymore. Then it's just about, okay, how, how can I get to the next step and the next step and the next step? So that that sort of threshold point that looks so scary initially, really it's just about getting beyond that break. And then it gets really fun and interesting and adventurous. And I think that's what good life truly is, is getting beyond that that threshold. Mm, thank you. Thank you, man. That was awesome. Uh, it's all, always great to chat with you. You always have the best questions and the best quality of attention. And so I'm honored to to be invited on as a guest on your podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Before you leave, if you love this episode, safe bet you'll also love the conversation we had with Tara Brock about a life of awareness and awakening from trance. You'll find a link to Tara's episode in the show notes. Even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you are on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.